You are listening to the Recovering Faith Podcast, an honest and non-judgmental discussion on faith in God and the doubts we often have, why it's sometimes difficult to trust God, and how we can know with a surety that He loves us. This show centers on strengthening and rebuilding our faith after loss, tragedy, or when coming to Christianity from a non-Christian or pseudo-Christian worldview. Now, here is your host, Gene Curl. Welcome back to Recovering Faith Podcast. The last few days have been kind of crazy here in Missouri. We've had uh, tornado warnings and hail, and we've had so much rain that I was thinking maybe I should be able to boat. So, in all seriousness, though, all of the uh, rivers are flooded and a lot of roads are closed because the river's flowing over the, over the road and all kinds of stuff like that and so um, I'm kind of waiting last minute to record this episode because I was trying to record it the last couple days but with the with the strong winds and the tornado sirens and the rain it was just way too loud and it wouldn't have been a very good quality recording so so um, it's doing a few hours and I'm recording it now so there we go (laughs) I don't like cutting it that close, but sometimes the weather just weather and other things just does not cooperate. But today's episode is called Feel Good Christianity. And the reason I want to talk about that is because there has been an alarming rise of what I term feel good Christianity in recent years. It's not that I'm opposed to people feeling good about themselves, at least not when they're feeling good about something good that they have done or something good that they're doing. But what I am against is the false doctrine that some of these churches teach uh, to those ends. And I'm against the false doctrine that God wants us to be happy with ourselves when we are intentionally sinning. Probably my biggest gripe with the feel-good Christian movement is instead of being properly portrayed and reverenced as our Lord and Savior and the Creator and the God of the universe, Jesus is sold to us as little more than a good pal whose greatest concern is to validate us us and make us happy with who we are, even if who we currently are is not who God wants us to be. Self-affirming Christianity is no Christianity at all. As Jesus didn't uh, suffer and die on the cross so that we could feel better about ourselves. He died so that we could be forgiven for the wicked and vile sins that we commit against him. And all sin, regardless of whom we have sinned against, is ultimately against God. When our identity is in Christ instead of ourselves, and, and instead of what the world says we should be, then we will feel validated because we are doing what God wants. But we should not expect God to help us feel good about ourselves when we are living contrary to His will. As Timothy Keller famously said, If your God never disagrees with you, then you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. And I completely agree with that. Not only did Jesus not die to make us feel better about ourselves or to be affirming to our lifestyles, if we're living a lifestyle that is contrary to the will of God and the teachings of the Bible, 
then Jesus does not want us to be comfortable, happy, or to feel good about ourselves, because that would not lead to repentance. Jesus wants us to be extremely uncomfortable in sin, so that we will turn from the sin and turn to him instead. Yes, Jesus loves us even when we are in sin, but he certainly doesn't want us to remain in sin, just like no good parent would ever wish their child to remain addicted to meth, even though they love their child while they're doing meth. And while it may not seem like it now, sin has a more destructive and lasting consequence than meth does. Meth will mess up your life. Sin will mess up your eternity. Also, just like no parent wants to be disrespected, God doesn't want to be disrespected either, and we should not justify such disrespect regardless of how we feel or what is wrong with our lives. There are a lot of churches today, some of which are extremely popular, that refuse to talk about the realities of sin and preach the message that basically any way we live is alright with God so long as we're not hurting anyone and that we're happy with ourselves. Jesus died to save us on the cross, or, or Jesus died on the cross rather to save us from sin. He didn't die on the cross so that we could revel in sin and worship it instead of worshiping Him. Idol worship is one thing that God never tolerated in the Bible, and anything we worship instead of God is an idol. While it is true that Jesus calls those of us who are following Him friends, we were not created to be party buddies with God. We were created to worship Him and to give Him glory. Everything that God ever created was ultimately to give Himself glory. A lot of these churches that teach this brand of feel-good Christianity teach that we are enough, just as we are. But if that were true, then Jesus would not have had to suffer and die on our behalf. The truth isn't nearly as pleasant sounding because no one really wants to hear that they are not enough and never will be. And precisely because we are so far from perfection is why God had to come in the form of a man and suffer and die on our behalf in the first place. Every one of us, and every person who has ever been born or ever will be born, has or will sin and fall short of the glory of God, as it says in Romans 3.23. And if we say that we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, as it says in 1 John 1, 8. We are not enough, and we never will be. And just because Jesus paid the price doesn't justify us being lazy and not taking responsibility for our poor choices, and it doesn't justify us not trying to improve ourselves. Uh, some people say that it's okay to yell at God and get angry with Him because He can handle it. And He can handle it, of course, because He's the most powerful being in existence. But that doesn't mean that it's not extremely disrespectful and blasphemous to speak to or about Him in a disrespectful manner. As many people have learned in the mountains or on the sea, there is always a cost associated with disrespecting power, and God is the ultimate power. I know that not all people have good parents, but for the sake of illustration, imagine a teenager who has great parents who only ever loved and uh, love and take care of him. But one day, they decide not to save him from the consequences of his poor actions so that he can learn from his mistakes and become a better person. 
But instead of thanking his parents for all they have sacrificed for his happiness over the years, he becomes angry and yells at his parents, saying every mean, disrespectful, and profanity-laden insult he can think of. Thinking that he's justified because he's angry and his parents are tough and can handle it. Of course, this teen would be short-sighted and thinking only of himself and taking no thought for the feelings of his parents. Imagine farther uh, that the teen thinks it is his parents' responsibility to make him happy at all costs, and that it is their job to validate him, even when he is being an extremely horrible son and a horrible person. Sadly, there are many who not only think that the responsibility that it is the responsibility of their parents to make them happy, but also society and God as well. Any reasonable person would say that the teen in this scenario is in the wrong, and just because the parents love him and put up with him doesn't mean that he is justified in acting that way. And in fact, it's all the more reason that his actions are not justified. Just because the parents are tough and can handle the anger, hatred, and disrespect that the teen thinks he is justified at hurtling at them, does not give him the right to treat them that way. First off, I know it's not a popular opinion in this day and age, but our parents don't owe us anything. Society doesn't owe us anything. And God certainly doesn't owe us anything either. Actually, we owe God everything, as everything from our first breath to our last and everything in between is a gift from God. A gift that we are not owed and did not deserve. The only thing in life that we are owed are the things that we have earned, and we can never earn anything from God, and we have to accept what He gives us free out of His great love. It is at the height of disrespect, and I dare say blasphemy, to think that God owes us something, and then to behave toward Him like a petulant child when we don't get our own way. Yes, God can handle our anger and hatred, of course he can, but that in no way gives us the right to disrespect him. We were given life by the grace of God, and then when we mess up in sin, we were given the greatest gift of all, which is forgiveness, and yet there are many who think their anger toward God is justified because their life isn't going exactly as they planned it, seemingly forgetting all they have been given. Imagine a peasant saved from death row by the king, and then instead of being grateful for being shown mercy, the peasant hurls insults at the king because he didn't also give him a bag of gold on a horse to ride home. I would imagine that the peasant would immediately find himself back on death row, only this time the executioner would have the blessing of the king. Luckily, God is a lot more forgiving and understanding than any earthly king. Despite the difference in power, between us and God being many levels of magnitude greater than what the king has over the lowest of his subjects. It even compounds the situation more when it is taken into account that it didn't cost the king anything to forgive the peasant, but it cost the Lord dearly to forgive us our sins. It cost the life of Jesus. I think that a lot of the time the reason people are angry with God is that they don't understand what he's doing and they're afraid that he's doing something that is not good for them, something they won't like. When I was a teenager, I worked at a fast food restaurant and despite the fact that I didn't really like the job and was not overly thrilled to go to work, I tried to be the best employee I possibly could be and worked any time I was asked to come in and did anything I was asked to do. 
I somehow managed to get my birthday off though, which was hard to do since I was born on the 4th of July, which was a busy day. I was really looking forward to going fishing on my birthday, which is what I had planned. On July 3rd, the day before my birthday, the manager told me that I would be working on the 4th until 2 p.m. and said that he called, uh, previously had called to ask me if I could work and my mother had answered and told him that I had said yes. I was so disappointed because there was no way at that point I could get out of working on my birthday. and. I would get off too late to make it worth driving to the lake, especially since I had to go to work the following day at 4.30 a.m. When I got home, I yelled at my mother for saying that I would work after I requested the fourth off and after I had told her that I requested the day off and was going fishing. I told my mother that she should have asked me first because I didn't want to work and now I couldn't get out of it. I was extremely upset with my mother and couldn't understand how she could be so thoughtless. The following day, when I got off work, one of my coworkers asked me if I would help him with a project at his house before I went home. And since the entire day was pretty much shot, I decided to go ahead and help him. By the time I finally got home, it was well into the evening. And when I walked through the door, I was greeted by a number of my friends and co-workers, including my boss and the guy who wanted me to go help him after work. I know it's supposed to be the point, but the surprise party was extremely surprising. I should have trusted my mother or at the very least not been disrespectful enough to yell at her. I did apologize for to my mother for yelling at her long before I ever knew there was going to be a party and my mother had been trying to do something nice for me. In my defense though, my father was absolutely against celebrating birthdays or holidays and I was raised without ever celebrating a birthday. So there was no logical reason to think that my mother would be planning a birthday party for me, despite the fact that my father was no longer in the picture. Still, my mother had always looked out for me and even when she did something that hurt me, it was never intentional. And she was always a good mother, and I should not have overreacted when I was told I had to work. Not only does feel-good Christianity allow us to and even encourage us to approach God in a way that it was, that is too familiar and not at all respectful, it also makes grace cheap since we don't have to pay for it like a teen girl using her father's credit card, never stopping to consider where the money comes from and how many countless hours her father spent at work to earn it. While grace is free to us, it comes with a great cost, and God had to become a man and suffer an agonizingly painful death on our behalf to cover the debt that we racked up. Everything has a cost, even if we are not the one to pay it. Jesus forgave every sin we have or ever will commit when he died on the cross, but that doesn't give us a blank check to spend on sin. The goal of the cross was to pay off and close our account with sin, not to give us a charge account with no limits. Let's be honest. If we are trying to validate a lifestyle or activity that is not in harmony with the Bible, then we are trying to justify sin so that we can feel good about ourselves while sinning rather than turning from the sin and to God. It's popular nowadays to minimize sin instead of calling it out. And that is not the gospel. That's not the good news. 
that is lying to ourselves so that we feel good about being a slave to sin. Jesus was kind and forgiving, but he also called out sin and told the sinner to turn from the sin. Nowhere in the Bible will you find an instance of Jesus finding a person in sin and telling them that they are enough and that they should be happy with who they are. Jesus loved the sinner, but he hated the sin. We are told that God doesn't make mistakes. And while it is true that God doesn't make mistakes, people come to a lot of false conclusions when they say that. God doesn't make mistakes, and that is the ultimate truism. But we sure make enough mistakes, and we should not justify any sin by saying that that's just how God made us and that He doesn't make mistakes. When we make a mistake and say that God doesn't make mistakes, we are taking the lazy road and saying that we are created that way instead of taking ownership for our poor choices. Just because you feel what you think is an actual inclination to do something doesn't mean that you were made to do it. Remember, there are people who feel natural inclinations to murder, rape, abuse children, and do all sorts of horrible and repulsive things. I hear a lot of so-called Christians say that they are angry or spiteful or whatever, and they just laugh it off and say, Oh, well, that's just how God made me. If there is anything we want to do or anything that we, that we do that is against God's will, then we were not made to do it, regardless of how badly we want to do it or regardless of how naturally it comes to us. A lot of the feel-good churches talk about how Jesus fulfilled the law and that all we have to do is believe, and there's a nugget of truth to that idea, but not with the way it is often implemented. The law could never save us and was not designed to do so, but rather the law was made so that we could use it as a guide and so we would know what sin is, and Paul the Apostle explained it elegantly, so I will turn to the Bible and use his words. In Romans 7, 7-13, it says, Well then, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said, You must not covet. But sin used the command to arouse all kind of covetous desires within me. If there were no law, sin would, have not, would not have had that power. At one time, I lived without understanding the law, but when I learned the command not to covet, for instance, the power of sin came to life, and I died. So I discovered that the law's command, which were supposed to bring life, brought spiritual death instead. Sin took advantage of those commands and deceived me. It used the commands to kill me. But the law itself is holy, and its commands are holy and right and good. But how can that be? Did the law which is good cause me my death? Of course not. Sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation to death. So we can see how terrible sin really is. It uses God's commands for its own evil purposes. For those of us who say that we are saved by grace and therefore can uh, live their life contrary to the teachings and the will of God, I would point out what James said about it. He said, You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. And that was James 2.19. So not only do all demons believe in God, 
They have a sure knowledge that he is and what he is, yet they fight against him. And believing in God while fighting against him will not save anyone any more than a life preserver will save a person who knows it is there but refuses to grab it. During his life on earth, Jesus encountered many demons, and it was common for him not to allow demons to speak when he cast them out, because they knew who he was, and he was not ready to reveal his his divine identity. Knowing that Jesus was God in the flesh did not cause the demons and evil spirits to worship him, and it certainly didn't save them from the penalties of hell. When we are truly born again, we are changed, and we want to be more like the God who created us and saved us. And that involves more than just believing. One of my hobbies is soap making. And in order to make soap, you have to mix lye with oils, and through a process called sponification, the lye and the oils mix and create soap. And if the ratio is correct, there is no soap, or sorry, there's no lye and there's no oil remaining, just soap. Of course, most soaps have extra oil so that there's a portion of oil that is not sponified so that the soap is more gentle on the skin, but that's beside the point. If there is any lye remaining, it's because there was not enough oil, and that will make the soap harsh and may burn our skin. And in this scenario, the lye could be compared to sin. When the oils and the lye go through sponification, the oil is not still trying to be oil, and the lye is not still trying to be lye. They both have been changed into something new. When we are truly born again, we are changed into something new as well, and we don't want to continue to live in sin as our nature has been changed. And if we want to feel good about ourselves while living in a sinful way, then we don't love God, and we don't want to serve Him, and we weren't born again. We just want to feel good about ourselves. This notion that God just wants us to be true to ourselves and happy with who we are has infiltrated popular Christian music as well, and I often cringe when I hear a song on the radio that suggests that our sin was planned by God so that we could fully understand His love. God never wants us to be sin, or He never wants us to sin. Let me be extremely clear about that. God does not want us to sin, nor does He ever tempt us to sin, and He definitely does not justify us in committing sin. Sin is serious business to God, so serious, in fact, that He sent His Son to die to get rid of it. James the Apostle and half-brother of the Lord Jesus spoke about sin and how it is a result of our own desires and is not from God. James said in James 1, 13-15, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then after uh, desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it uh, is full grown, gives birth to death. Just as a company will not validate your parking for shopping with their competitors, God will not validate a lifestyle that does not bring him glory. I'm not sure why she thought it would work, but my ex-wife would always park in the parking garage so that she could go to some event or movie with her friends. And then she would try to get a store which she did not shop at to validate her parking. We attempt to get God to validate our sinful lifestyle, or uh, when we do so, it's like 
shopping at JCPenney's and then trying to get Forever 21 to validate our parking. When I lived in Lincoln, Nebraska, so many people would park in the garage at the shopping center and walk to the courthouse that the stores had to put up signs saying that they would not validate parking without a purchase receipt and would, under no circumstance, validate court parking. The court, by the way, would not validate parking either, even if you parked there for court business. God doesn't want to validate us or, or make us happy when we're sinning against him and living a sinful life. God wants us to be happy, but he wants us to be happy in him. Jesus loves each and every one of us, but he wants us to be happy. And he wants us to be happy because we are following his will. God created us to love and serve him, and when we do, we will find happiness and fulfillment, even if we are in the midst of the storms of life. Thanks for listening to the Recovering Faith Podcast. Please rate and review this show and share it with your friends and family. You are loved.